Welcome, everybody, to the Always Hope Podcast, a production of Will Wood's Faith and Marriage. I'm your host, Dr. Mario Sacasa, and truly grateful that you are allowing me to share this day with you. Well, what is perfectionism? Where does the idea of having to be perfect all the time come from? And as somebody who has at times in my life struggled with perfectionism, I know this all too well. Where does it emerge and what do we do with it? So joining me on the show today to tackle these questions is Dr. Peter Martin, licensed psychologist and internship director of integrated training and formation at the Immaculate Heart of Mary Counseling Center in Lincoln, Nebraska. In today's episode, Dr. Martin and I discuss why perfectionism is on the rise among young people, cultural images that unintentionally perpetuate it, what Jesus meant when he says, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect, differentiating mercy and justice. And lastly, we offer some practical strategies to be able to overcome perfectionism in your life. It's another amazing episode. And when it is done, please head on over to faithinmarriage.org for more great content. We have a wonderful blog where Jason and myself contribute as well as this amazing podcast, Always Hope, and his YouTube videos at the heart. You can access all of those there at faithinmarriage.org. So let's get into this conversation with Dr. Peter Martin. Dr. Peter Martin, welcome to the Always So Podcast. How are you doing today? I am doing fine. Thank you very much for asking. It's good to be with you. Yeah, likewise, likewise. So uh, with apologies to to the listener, I know that this is um, just an audio podcast, but uh, I thought, you know, for today, we're going to be talking about perfectionism. So I thought it'd be appropriate to invite Mr. Perfect himself. Uh, Clark Kent is here with us <laughs> on the call. Uh, how, how are things happening in Smallville today? <laughs> oh, that's good. It, it's funny you say that. I am originally from Kansas and so forth. So that does kind of fit. Uh, nothing else applies in the metaphor, though. Um, <laughs> uh, th- things are well. Yeah, the weather is beautiful out here today and looking forward to a, a good weekend with family and and uh, just enjoying, you know, this, trying to enjoy the COVID um, kind of social isolation as much as possible. You know, it's a tough time for everybody, but trying to look at the silver lining, spending more time with family and, and things like that. Awesome. Awesome. All right. Well, uh, in addition to looking like Clark Kent, uh, introduce yourself to the audience. Uh, what, what, what do you got going on in Lincoln, Nebraska? Well, uh, it's funny you say Clark Kent. I've been accused of that one time previously, um, <laughs> which is kind of funny. Actually, it was a doctor that, that I met. But um, in, in Nebraska, well, n- not, a, not a lot outside of, you know, t- at our particular office at CSS, uh, where we do faith-integrated counseling for uh, pretty much um, uh, the entire spectrum of the, the Diocese of Lincoln, which is the southern part of Nebraska. Um, we've, we've been working remotely for a number of weeks, of course, because of COVID, um, and have just really, uh, become more accustomed to doing online types of treatments. Not my preference by any means, but I think, uh, it's something that, um, it, I've heard, I've heard, don't let great, don't let great get in, get in, uh, in the way of good enough mm-hmm. is how it's put. So if you're striving for greatness, that's a good thing. But um, the challenge, of course, is it's not ideal when you're not in the, with the client in the session. But nonetheless, um, it, it will make do kind of thing. Amen. Well, Peter, you just gave me a nice segue into what we'll be talking about today throughout our interview, which is perfectionism. <laughs> and that tendency for many of us to to let that happen exactly where we let the perfect get in the way of the good or when we let the ideal get in the way of kind of just, I mean, reality and, and circumstances are as they are. So 
I think for where I want to begin today is I recognize that all of us, as we're trying to live, I mean, hopefully, hopefully we're striving to be better people every day. Um, hopefully we're, we're trying to integrate the messages of our faith and trying to apply that into our life in a way that improves our lives every single day. So the striving for the ideal is not the problem in, in, in having certain standards upon which you want to live your life with isn't the problem either. But sometimes we do let the perfect get in the way of the good. And there are some times where a perfectionism that kind of comes with a harsh criticism, with, a, with an intense negativity, with, with fear, we're going to break apart all these things throughout the interview, kind of gets in the way of us being able to have peace, of being able to have an intimate relationship with the Lord of being able to, to just even move forward uh, because sometimes we feel crippled by all of this. So we're going to be talking about perfectionism today. In your research, in your studies, um, what, like what is perfectionism? How can we put a, a definition to it? How can we put some type of labels for, for the purposes of our conversation today? Excellent. Yeah, it's good to start off by operationalizing what we're talking about here. You got right? it. So, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I do like, uh, there's a couple of different sources that I pull from. Uh, one name is someone that uh, some of your audience might be familiar with, named David Burns, if that sounds real good. Yeah. Sounds familiar. He's, he's kind of a big name in CBT, um, one of the, the leading figures. But he says, a perfectionist is someone whose standards are high beyond the reach or reason, uh, people who strain compulsively and unremittingly toward impossible goals and who measure their own worth entirely in terms of productivity and accomplishment. Great definition. Yeah, break that down um, a little bit for me. Absolutely, yeah. So <clears throat> one of the challenges, uh, one of the challenges that um, perfectionists typically have created this um, idol mm. of what it means to be happy. Um, and so uh, you'll see this from like uh, examples of Karen Horney has this model of the real, actual, uh, and the ideal self. Well, the ideal self is best basically what a perfectionist strives for. Um, they're trying to achieve this unattainable goal, and they feel like they have to achieve it on a consistent, regular basis, or they get pretty miserable. Like it's not even kind of like, oh, I feel kind of sad that I missed that hundred percent. It's I got a ninety nine percent and I'm a worthless person. That, mm -hmm. That's the kind of extreme uh, measures that people will go to. So that's the one thing. So it's beyond the, the reach or reason. Um, so it's unrealistic. The other thing that they do, you know, to bring in the the Christian faith, is that they think like they have to create this idol self. And see, the thing about discernment and vocational discernment in a Christian sense is you don't really create, you discern and discover, and then hopefully embrace and go down the path. Um, but for them, they feel like they have to make this idol. And, and so um, the ideal self is, if you remove the E and the A, mm -hmm. add an O. It's kind of this, this they, they worship at the, the altar of the self, of this idol. And, and what happens is they listen to this lie over and over. We know who the father of lies is. But then not only do they strive for unattainable goals that are kind of unre unrealistic, but they do so compulsively and unremittingly. And I like the, the language you used before really, I think, hit home. Um, there's this striving for high level of achievement, but then there's um, to the exclusion of internal peace. Mm -hmm. See, right. like you said, there's, it's not a problem. Striving is not a problem. Excellence is something we should all be striving for. You know, virtue is the excellence of human action, right? It's right. this kind of firm disposition to do the good. But virtue also requires this kind of internal peace as you're doing it. And actually, virtue says, 
well, we want you to enjoy what you're doing. Perfectionists don't really enjoy it. In fact, they're so focused on achieving this uh, self-created goal or idol that what happens is they lose their peace, and in the process, they focus more. They focus more on failure than they do achievement. Amen. Wow. Okay. So I have to confess right now, uh, and I'm stealing this from an old supervisor of mine. Um, I'm a, a closet type A personality in that like I, I, I like to pretend or demonstrate that I'm a type B individual, but that's a well-crafted <laughs> type B, you know, display yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, that in reality, I'm, I'm, and I've come to accept this as I've gotten older, that I, I've realized, no, no, I think I'm a lot more type A and I've embraced my type A-ness uh, as I've gotten older and recognizing nice. that I do have uh, certain structures that I need and I do have certain ideals that I strive for. Um, and so this perfectionism, I could speak for myself and in with many clients that I've worked with as well, you know, at times that it, it has prevented me, uh, from letting things go. And I think that's the place like for, no. So when it comes to like the 99 or hundred, me personally, I, I've never been that, that kind of scrupulous, but I know for some individuals they are, and we could talk about scrupulosity right. a little bit later, particularly what that looks like with regards to religious, you know, kind of scruples. Um, but but just perfectionism as a whole, I, I find uh, seems to be, and I don't know if this is right or wrong. I don't know if this is just anecdotal, but I just I just feel like with with young adults, I tend to hear it more often, like coming up in conversation, that like you have to go to the right school, and when you're at the right school, uh, you have to be, um, you know, you have to have the right grades. It just seems like there's such more comp- competition when it comes to to school, to grades, to career. That this this kind of creates this kind of cultural angst. I don't know what else to say, but just like that seems to be driven or, or anchored on this notion of being perfect or, and we don't even know what that word means, but it seems like that tends to drive a, a lot of the experience uh, culturally. What, what do you think? Yeah. yeah, I think, I think you're onto something there. Um, in fact, um, if you look at the data on personality disorders and I'm not diagnosing anybody or saying anything here. <laughs> well, thanks, uh, but, thanks, man. I appreciate it. Here we go. This is <laughs> but, but definitely, I, I wouldn't consider you in that category. But, but if you look at the data on personality structure and personality disorders, what you find is that the most prevalent personality disorder is what's called obsessive compulsive personality disorder. And that's that overlaps highly with uh, perfectionism. Um, the one of the primary populations I work with is college students. Mm-hmm. You said young adults and so forth. Um, there is a correlation with um, higher education and perfectionism. <clears throat> You'll see more OCPD, for instance, <clears throat> in higher educated individuals. Um, and I think part of it has to do with is. OCPD, or let's just say perfectionism for now, perfectionism is what's typically understood to be an overcompensation for some type of insecurity, Mm. right? So the idea is, if I perform perfectly, if I am able to achieve X, Y, or Z, if I put on the good face, I'm the perfect Catholic, that kind of thing, um, then nobody will discover who I really think I am. And that could be that the person could feel like a failure. They could feel ashamed. Uh, they can feel defective. Um, but there's a lot of different things that this uh, perfectionism tends to cover over or protect. You know, the, the old language is defend against, right? Yeah, Defense yeah. mechanisms. But to protect their 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 kind of vulnerable side, where the, their vulnerable, more weaker side, in order to um, kind of achieve and show people that they can do it. Now, 
I, in some ways, all of us have this, right? Mm-hmm. We have our own particular areas that we overcompensate for. Um, I have my own sets of things. I'm sure there's no, I'm sure there's, there's a, a good reason why perfectionism became a strong interest of mine in terms of intellectual pursuits. <laughs> Research <laughs> but, me search, as they say. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So, so uh, there, there's elements in there that really hit home with me, but also um, that the striving for excellence, and this is where people get it mixed up. The striving for excellence is not the problem. Okay. That's not the problem with perfectionists. Like if you, if you tell a perfectionist, don't strive for excellence, they're going to bristle. Right. They're going to bristle. They're going to stiffen up. But if you tell them, hey, what would it be like to be able to achieve at a high level and still maintain that internal peace spiritually and psychologically? do that if we if we could work on that together the vast majority would say yes but they think you're crazy and even um even mentioning that that's a possibility yeah because right? that, that it's harsh that's right is if you you need that harsh taskmaster master to to be the thing that drives you towards excellence now real quick let's back up for a second here you talked about ocpd as the 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 more clinical term for for maybe what we're speaking about globally with regard to perfectionism but really, just because I know people are going to be asking right now, give me a brief definition, distinction between OCPD and OCD, where I can hear individuals saying, well, this guy's, hold on a second, this guy's saying I'm a perfectionist, so that means I'm, I'm OCD. Or even we talk about people being OCD kind of in general. Um, what, what's the difference between OCD and OCPD? So o- OCPD is understood to be more of like a trait-like quality. So it's, it's a type of personality structure that's extreme, that focuses a lot on a variety of different areas uh, that's kind of pervasive. It's not just exclusive like with OCD. It's not just exclusive to, let's say, a hand washer that's afraid of germs and so they wash their hands or a checker, you know, the one that checks the lock you know, back and forth 15 to 30 minutes before they go to work or something like that. Um, OCPD has some interesting overlap. There's obsessed, kind of obsessive qualities and compulsive kind of qualities, but it's more of a personality structure, like I said, that's pervasive. And depending on how extreme, it can encompass a wide range of many activities and a wide range of interpersonal relationships. Um, so that, that would be the major distinction, I'd say, between the two. Okay, great. So we're looking at something that that again, gradations of it, but it's more of a trait that somebody who tends to have a high standard um, and and aims for this perfectionism, but but is but that perfectionism, that strive for excellence, is marred with the anxiety that we've spoken about when excellence isn't achieved. That's different than than the specific behaviors or the compulsive thinking of, like you said, somebody who compulsively washes their hands or has to check certain things, whether that's folding their pajamas in the drawer a particular way. And kind of inability to to let that that go. So we're, we're, when we're speaking about today, just for clarity's sake for the audience, we're not speaking about OCD. That's a whole nother conversation. We're focusing right. in on perfectionism and kind of its 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 relation uh, to um, OCPD. Now you said that with regards to college students and those in higher education, um, there tends to be higher rates of OCPD um, or perfectionistic tendencies than the general population. To some degree, right. that makes sense. I guess when you're thinking about people and when you go even further along for advanced studies, that are individuals who are who are looking for 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 perfection. But do you think that there's any? I mean, maybe we're just speculating at this point. But do, do you have any sense about reasons why you think this stuff is on the rise? Yeah, I. So so to kind of address the first part, and then then to get to the second one. Um, 
I, I do think there are elements with uh, college students these days, and, and part of the re- that turns toward perfectionism because perfectionism is rewarded, mm-hmm. right? So if you're a high achiever, they're not going to ask you, did you have peace or not as you achieved, you know, <laughs> did well four, on this no, test. Did you get the 4.0 or, yeah. or not? It doesn't you're matter. 4.0, right? Yeah, yeah, you're valedictorian, right? Yeah, so, so, you, so you actually get rewarded. So it's hard to break that cycle because it's so, so rewarding at an, at an academic and professional level. Um, why it's on the rise. So to, to kind of start, look at where it's at now, it might be good to look at possible origins or where it came from. And so uh, some of the origins could be from a conditional love from an authority figure. So it doesn't even have to be a parent. It could be just someone that the person really looked up to and they had very high expectations and they noticed that, that the other person didn't seem to treat them the same way if they, did, if they didn't achieve a certain level. And so uh, they felt loved only if they met the standards. So this notion of kind of un- unconditional love was not part and parcel of their early environments um, with key figures. Another example is even if the parents were loving unconditionally, maybe the parents were models of high unbalanced standards and they would beat themselves up in a very visible way, let's say for the kids. And so you have this kind of social modeling components where they, the child saw the parent do this over and over. They admire the parents. And so now they're going to emulate that in the future. But then you have this notion, you take this from object relations or attachment theory. There's also this kind of internalization of the parent figure who criticizes. So you, when you ask, um, clients sometimes about, you know, let's get to know this, uh, this perfectionistic kind of uh, self-criticism, this self-talk that's real negative, or the inner critic, sometimes they'll call it. And for some clients that have severe cases of this, and even some that aren't so severe, they'll just they'll act like this particular uh, inner critic looks identical to their critical dad. Just looks identical. They can hear the voice. It sounds like him. He's saying the same things over and over in their adult mind, uh, even though he's not physically present, that they heard growing up. And so this is a very difficult thing for them uh, to kind of work through. So um, also, and I mentioned this earlier, it could also be because of overcompensation for feelings of defectiveness, right? Yeah. So there, you think of the fight, flight, freeze responses or reactions. This is a fight response, they're going to do the opposite of the way that they feel. So if I feel defective, I'm going to do everything I can to show you that I'm not. Yeah. It's kind of the concept. Um, so that's those are some possible origins. Not exhaustive, but those are some possible origins. Yeah, those are all great. So hold on to that for just a second. But the other piece I want to say when we talked about college students, going back to that, where you said that you're rewarded for your perfectionism. That was really beautiful because... When, when you really think about school, school is the, the game, if we can look at it that way, the rules of the game are, are pretty easy. I mean, you, I shouldn't say easy, it requires a lot of work, but it's, it's clear is really what I'm trying to say. You do the tasks, you get the grade, you move on. And the structure upon which that you're achieving or striving for um, is, is pretty, it's, it's pretty straightforward. That's what it is. You do the assignments, you do the work, you get the grade, you move on. Now, that type of clarity um, we almost, it's almost kind of like what I find, at least with young adults who are, who are, you know, quote unquote adulting or hashtag adulting, as they say, <laughs> as you're moving out of education and then getting into the real world, that yeah. the, the game of the real world, I hate to say it that way of, of, of the workspace has a lot more covert rules to it. And it isn't quite as clear in terms of saying, well, if I just do X, Y, and Z, 
it's like a formula. If I do this, this, and this, easy, great, I perform to that, I get the 4.0. 4.0, right. I'm a winner. Awesome. That's life. We keep moving forward. But then you kind of adopt that where it's almost kind of like you're, 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 I hate to say it this way, but it's, it's like this, you're tricked almost into thinking that like, that's how life is going to be. And so, so the nebulous nature of, of relationships, of romantic relationships, of raising kids, of bosses, of personalities in the workplace, all, all of those things tend to make it difficult to say, well, what am I really striving for perfection for? I mean, what am I really trying to do here to begin with, you yeah. know? Like, and I think that sometimes uh, this is at least what I've seen in, in, in my work here has been the challenges there for like getting out of an environment that's highly structured as an academic one, as a student, then to getting into the workplace and transitioning into that, where some people who excel in one don't necessarily excel in the other, because sometimes what makes you really good in one doesn't necessarily make you uh, excellent in the other. Uh, what do you think? Right. It's in, no, it's interesting just to kind of touch upon a couple of those things. Um, the, you, you talked about ambiguity yeah. is a really important factor because um, if people tend toward wanting precision and they want the numbers and they want the specs before they go on to try something out, you put them in an environment where there's a lot of kind of learning curve where it's not spelled out. You don't have the rules and the regs in front of you. What happens then is they get more anxious and usually anxiety drives the perfectionism coping, right? So, so you'll see people overcompensate because now that it's so ambiguous, I don't know what to do. I feel insecure. Well, now I got to be more perfect. Now I got to try X more. But the problem is the environment doesn't allow for that because there's going to be tons of mistakes. The learning curve is going to be a, a long learning curve. And so um, they run into this kind of vicious cycle with it and it can be very unnerving for them. And so you, th you take a college student, right, especially here in the last you know, few months in particular, some of them do better. Um, some of them actually will do better uh, doing um, uh, remote learning as opposed to being in the same environment. Right. Others will do worse uh, because it's a new environment. It's a transition. There's a lot of unknowns. How am I going to handle this? Um, so it, th there's a lot of variables there. But I guess I would say is um, it can be a nasty, vicious cycle that the person has to be able to step back from. They can live a little too close to life. They can get caught up in those old coping habits, those old maladaptive styles of coping and overcompensating, and they have to step back from it. Otherwise, it just feels like that is reality. Mm. There's no options. I have to do more. There's no options. My value is based on doing more and, and being successful and outcomes. So this is the struggle you run into whenever uh, an individual bases um, their value on utilitarian things, mm. uh, as opposed to that kind of deep set, unconditional love. Um, one other quick thing about that. Um, Do it. If, if you look at the attachment research on this, you look at, they call it the five pillars of promoting secure attachment. Of the five, which I won't lay out there, but of the five, there's a fourth particular pillar, and these are developmental, <clears throat> that is really critical uh, and is the most the most commonly not experienced in a consistent fashion by individuals who are in therapy, for instance. It's the issue of did they feel delighted in mm. in a consistent way by their parents, right? Think, think of the perfectionist. 
parents, if the parents are critical and they take their love away based on outcomes and so forth, um, versus I am going to unconditionally not only love, but delight in your presence just because of you, just because you have a heartbeat, right? It's just because that kind of thing. And, and what that does is it helps people to handle that ambiguity so that when they establish that fourth kind of um, pillar of, of attachment security, now they can do the fifth, which is to become the best version of themselves, and they're accompanied in it. But what happens if you don't have those first four, you're going to struggle becoming the best version of yourself. And you're probably going to turn into this rigorous, you could, I shouldn't say probably, right. you could turn into this rigorous perf, uh, perfectionist. Now, you spoke about anxiety and the fight or flight response here. Why then is the perfectionism viewed as a fight response? Um, because I've heard, I'll, I'll say this, you know, the other, we can, we can, sometimes people oscillate between perfectionism and procrastination. And I've read this right. recently that procrastination is typically was viewed as people being lazy, but that actually isn't what the research shows. What it is, is right. actually it's, it's anxiety and it's fear that's preventing you from performing that particular task. So whether that is, let's go back to school. My, uh, one of my professors, when I was getting my doctorate would always say that, um, the doc students, doctoral students always had the cleanest apartments because they <laughs> would be focusing on cleaning the apartments rather than sitting down getting their rear in their chair and knocking out the dissertation, you know? <laughs> and so you procrastinate by doing these other things. Why? Because the task is daunting and there's a certain yeah. dread that you feel before accomplishing even just a small amount of this particular task. So if we look at then a response, just, just again, in general, like anxiety, what does anxiety do to the brain? Um, and that can be a whole, a whole nother episode. So, sure. so, but then how does, how does it relate specifically then to, to, to this notion of perfectionism? Yeah, it's interesting. You were talking about uh, the fight, flight, freeze response mm -hmm. or, or coping. That's kind of that survival level of autonomic uh, nervous system hyperarousal, they call it. Yeah, and so what happens is you'll find with individuals that are perfectionistic. And I'll, I'll just I'll, I'll give one example of, of someone, uh, a, a wonderful person, beautiful soul, but extremely perfectionistic. And this is what generally would happen to him. So uh, when he was distressed or, you know, kind of uh, nervous about accomplishing some assignment and doing well on it or something, what he would do is he would go into overdrive, right? Because he felt very insecure, didn't want people to know about, you know, or to, to find out what he perceived himself to be, which was no good or something. And so what he would do is he would go into overdrive and he'd work really hard and go for broke for the next like two days nonstop. Your body and your mind and your heart can't handle that. So then what happens is then he shifted into flight mode and he would just shut down. He would just uh, become more emotionally detached. He was like uh, not even half alive, you know, if you, if you talk to him. And so what happens is the way a person copes can have a chron chronological order to it. In his case, he his go-to was overcompensating. That's the perfectionism and, you know, workhorse, that kind of thing, um, taskmaster. But then after that didn't go so well because your body and mind can only handle so much, then it shifted into the flight or shutdown or detachment mode. Um, generally, you'll find, I will say this, I do find with procrastinators that a lot, it's not so much a laziness. I do find it's a lot of times it can be associated with perfectionism because the idea is that 
um, they're afraid of not being perfect. And so if there's an assignment that they don't feel like they have great mastery over, or if there's a relationship, they don't quite know what to do or something, they will avoid it like the plague until they absolutely have to confront it. Um, so yeah, so procrastination also can be correlated with, uh, perfectionism. Yeah. So we have to resist this all or nothing thinking is what it sounds like in, in many ways. And, and that kind of mm-hmm. is the way forward. Now I'll say, you know, we spoke about different origins or possibilities for, um, for why this could be on the rise. You spoke beautifully about familial interactions and what's been modeled for you or what hasn't been modeled for you. If you haven't had that sense of delight, uh, that, that, that sense of security and relationship that you have permission to be able to make mistakes, that you have freedom to take the risks yeah. um, that security affords. Um, but I'll, I'll throw out just another angle on this rather than just kind of the, the inner working. But I think also culturally speaking, I, I, I feel mm. that when it comes to a couple things here that I'm going to propose in, in my own speculations here, one is, again, we're doing a podcast. We're on the internet right now, so people listening to this are are accessing accessing this on on apps. You probably found this through social media. So I'm not dogging the internet or social media as a whole, but, <laughs> but I think that to some degree, when when your when your um, community expands almost to a limitless possibility, limitless number of individuals, it it's really hard to kind of find your footing within all of that. Like it's easier when you were in a small town or just even in a, a small community. You only really compared yourself to those who kind of were around you. But now when you have to compare yourself to the 7 billion other people in the world, because any one of them could potentially be a Facebook friend or an Instagram friend or, or whatever are the curated image that we put ourselves online, those standards are really um, uh, are, 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 are unhealthy. You know, it's unnecessary. Like we just can't, mm-hmm. we can't even, we can't even get to that. Um, so right. their standards are too high that we place on ourselves in the comparisons that we make with others. So I think one, social media may or may not be driving this again, correlation, I don't, causation, I'm not sure. I don't have the research in front of me. I'm just speculating. But then the other one, just to kind of speak to this, because this is something that's come up recently in the Sakasa household, we love movies and we watch a, a lot of different films. Um, and so we've, we've been watching, uh, my boys are getting older and now we can watch some more, some more superhero movies and, and catch yeah. up on those. And all Star Wars are big Star Wars fans. Uh, we just watched uh, episode five recently, episode three with the kids. We, of course, have seen all the sequel yeah. trilogy and have made the comparisons between the sequel trilogy and the, the original and the prequel trilogy. And, and I'll say this, because I think this is pertinent to our conversation, particularly when it comes to women. I only have four boys, so I'm sensitive to messages about, about men. But, but if I had a girl, this is what I would say. In light of like Ray, for example, from the sequel trilogy, or even somebody like Captain Marvel, or even to some degree Wonder Woman mm-hmm. in the way that they're portrayed now, it almost seems that like this this level of perfectionism that has been placed on women has been taken to like another level. So for example, mm. episode five, Luke, if no spoilers here, I know people who haven't really seen during Empire Strikes <laughs> Back, if you haven't, I'm sorry. But Luke Skywalker as the hero of the story makes a boneheaded rash decision that has real consequences at the end of the film. He loses his hand. He almost loses his friends. He almost loses the whole rebellion enterprise because of his one rash decision that he, that he makes. But he learns from those mistakes. It almost seems mm-hmm. that like the way that we portray women now, and I have nothing wrong with, with female leads in films, strong female right. leads, and that's not, that's not right. at all. I think but that we're, because we were so, we feel such pressure to have to put strong female leads that we almost forget to make them human. 
in the sense that like yeah. they don't have any flaws anymore and they don't have they don't make mistakes anymore because we feel like we can't show that because somehow that would be anti-woman but the converse happens then that if we don't show these characters with some flaws with making mistakes with some development in their character yeah. arc you know story arc then we're just i think perpetuating or even making it harder on young women with regards to the perfectionism that is already being placed on them because now it's not not even now you can't just have to be the leader but you have to be the superhero and attractive and witty and everything yeah. at a perfect <laughs> level and you have to have it all figured <clears throat> out right from the get go like whew, that's right I mean that's exhausting just just <laughs> no what I'm thinking about it yeah go, no problem go ahead have fun you know yeah right. so and then so, be fashionable about it too and right? be fashionable <laughs> about it it's the same yes exactly all of it um. So I, I, I'm just very sensitive to to that as a cultural narrative um, that that's playing out as well. Um, what what do you think about that? Yeah, no, I I think I think it's it's a problem possibly on both sides, right? right. Males and females both. <clears throat> you're seeing, but you're you're noting that there is a lot more female leads that tend to be kind of the superhero version and so forth, and they don't look at that character arc, they don't look at that development. Um, <clears throat> and I'm okay with uh, we're both okay with female leads. We like the Blessed Mother. I'm assuming. Yep. So the issue is. Why why do they all have to look like the Blessed Mother in terms of, you know, like, <laughs> so she had these inherent qualities and she was already amazingly kind of inherently virtuous and so forth. Um, the, the challenge, like you're saying, is that it puts this unattainable standard for 99.99% of women out there. Right. And, and that's the challenge. Like I personally, I, I see kind of a um, – a little bit of a of a uh, of a similarity when it comes to like reading about saints, mm-hmm. um, because oftentimes uh, they don't give you the character arc if you want to use that language. Correct. They don't. They like like there are you get books the finished product, but you forget the journey. You, get, you don't see the journey yeah. that it took to get there. Exactly. Yeah, I, and, and you know, as a therapist, like I can't tell you the number of times I have clients talking about that. They feel like it's this impossible standard to achieve. They try so hard, and it's never quite what the saint had. And um, <clears throat> and so I think I think from a, a formative developmental standpoint, even in in the reading of saints, I'd love to have more like every have a have a confessions of Saint Augustine for every saint kind of thing. You know, mm-hmm. that way we could get the sense of it. <clears throat> so so I think. Um, I do think we should strive for excellence, but I do think it would be nice if individuals could see that, yeah, this didn't happen without lots of effort. This didn't happen without lots of discernment and prayer and struggle. It didn't happen without the cross. That's right. Um, <clears throat> because because the challenge is they see the glory, right? They see the glory, but they don't see the passion that went into it to get there. Uh, and that's a problem it, because it doesn't it doesn't encompass the Christian. I mean, I would say, say from a Christian standpoint, it doesn't encompass the Christian story. Um, in many ways, it needs all that to be to be really effective, and to also circumvent some of these kind of perfectionism tendencies. Yeah, the the one character that I that I will highlight, I guess, for the sake of redeeming something here, um, is Black Widow, and I was excited to see the Black Widow movie to see what they were going to do with her. But her story arc changes if you if you see her from. And here's my nerd card coming out on the table here over the course of the, the Marvel movies. You know, yeah. if you see her from the first time we introduced she's characters introduced in Iron Man two. But particularly in in Captain America, the Winter Soldier, you really see her as this career driven. You know, she's an agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. She's just going to get the job done, whatever it is. And that shift happens um, somewhere along the way where she really connects with the Avengers as a family. And you see that in Civil War, where she then chooses 
the the relationships rather than just kind of the doing what's right based on the standard mm-hmm. that's put before her, ultimately leading to uh, some some real um, real difficult choices that she makes in Endgame, which is the last movie, and I'm not giving any spoilers away for anybody. But you do <laughs> see a development that does happen within her character that I, I would like to highlight as as being. Uh, a little bit more attainable and something that's a little bit more real because for any of us who struggle with perfectionism, it's a reminder that like we're all on a journey and there isn't like the finished product. Sometimes you feel like the finished product was supposed to happen six months ago and and you hold yourself to this ideal standard of yourself or to a human being that isn't really attainable or it could be attainable, but it takes time to get to that point. And like you said, you realize that when you look at the saints, the cross, the journey, the development, their story arc, again, if we can use that type of language, their character development over the course of their life is 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 just something that takes time. And so for all of us, we have to recognize to have some degree of patience within ourselves. Hey everybody, this is Dr. Mario, and I'm taking a quick break from my conversation with Dr. Peter Martin to encourage you to find me on social media, Facebook or Instagram, or even LinkedIn at Dr. Mario Sacasa. I am there and sharing continuous thoughts about things that are coming up, culturally speaking, um, as well as other reflections related to the podcast. And I would love to be able to have dialogue and conversation with you. So if you have any questions or comments and you'd love to share them with me, please find me on social media at Dr. Mario Sacasa. Speaking then of saints and looking at scripture, what are what are some scriptural passages here? Now, I know... And I think you said this in, in one of your 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 uh, your talks, which you do so beautifully. Um, but it's something that I've reflected on also. When Jesus says, "You know, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect," you know that can be a mantra that we can just kind of whip ourselves with. You know, we'll say, <laughs> "I got to be perfect in all things." Um, so, what what do you, what do you think about that passage? And then also looking at some of the other uh, scriptural kind of um, examples that are offered to ha- have a counterbalance between what perfectionism is or or isn't. Yeah, it, it's a beautiful passage, and, and and the kind of corresponding passages I think in Luke are also very good. I, I I think I'll start out by saying what I think, but by what I think he's not saying. Right. So, <laughs> when he, so what he first says in Matthew five forty eight, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. I don't. He didn't say uh, be perfectionistic as your heavenly Father is perfectionistic. He didn't say be hypercritical, be scrupulous. He didn't say if you have a 95% on your test to really beat yourself up for that, right? Um, the other thing is um, he didn't say to be Pharisee-like, right? I, my sense is we want to be Christ-like in the way that we're perfect. And, and how, do, how do you look – how would you say that? So um, you can still dine with sinners and tax collectors is the idea um, because, because the, the way that the New Testament operates in terms of mercy and in terms of holiness – and I'm pulling this from some stuff I read from Scott Hahn, is that in the Old Testament, it meant to be set apart and separate, kind of like don't um, don't touch something that's unclean and, and so forth. Whereas in the New Testament, it's it's more like get involved. It's be it's be that steward. It's it's to help that person who's the um, the prodigal or help that person who is laying by the side of the road who just got beaten up and robbed. Um and if you look at Luke's parallel, which is Luke 6.38 and, and surrounding, 
you'll notice that what he says is not be perfect as your heavenly father. He says, be merciful as your heavenly father is merciful. And the way that I interpret that, the way I would see it, I'm by no means am I a scripture scholar. I've done some uh, exegesis on this a little bit, but my sense is if you think of God as love and he wants us to become more like him, to become more uh, purified in his love, to become more loving. And if you think of mercy, especially after the fall of Adam and Eve, as kind of now at the center of that kind of love. Um, it's like the number one variable in his relationship with us. I, I once had, um, when I was studying, there was a, a woman named Nancy Flynn, who was just a real sweet mother hen Flynn, I would call her. <laughs> and she had some, uh, a son who was, I think he was a semi-pro quarterback. Wow. Real athletic boys, but they're pretty rough and tumble. I, I'm sure not unlike like your own, right? Yes. But, <laughs> but, but what happened is she said, whenever they would start stepping out of line, she would say, now, boys, you're leaving the gymnasium of charity, is how she wow. put it. And, and so when I, when I ponder that, and I'll get back to this perfect uh, kind yeah, of discussion. Good. When I ponder that, if I look at it in a physiospatial sense, um, Pope Paul VI says justice is the minimum measure of charity. That's a great line. It's the minimum measure of charity. So that means justice is still loving, or otherwise, if God was just, he wouldn't be loving, but he is. So justice is loving, but it's just inside the front door of the gymnasium of charity. Mercy is at center court. <clears throat> and so my sense of what they're, what they're kind of striking at, I think there's more than just this, is that <clears throat> they, he wants you to be perfectly merciful in that sense. There's other variables there, but, but mercy is so much at the heart of what love is uh, in our relationship with God that he's wanting us to kind of focus on that, that merciful. What is mercy? Steadfast, tender compassion. That's the language of theologians. That's not sappy psychologists. That's steadfast, tender compassion. That's, that's the kind of mercy um, to, to, to focus on in many ways. So does he want us to strive for excellence? Absolutely. Right. Does he want us to strive for for holiness and to be more godlike? Absolutely. Um, that's a very different phenomenon than my understanding of what perfectionism is. Yeah, absolutely. Because if we're supposed to be perfect like the Father, who images the Father most perfectly? Well, that's the Son. And so when we study the Son, those of us who believe uh, that Christ is the Messiah, we look at a model of an individual that that doesn't achieve he's perfect in every way and right. he doesn't do the things that we associate with perfectionism in terms right. of the harsh criticism now he's critical he's critical to the pharisees he's critical to religious leaders he's critical when when those who are supposed to be in his name are not doing the things that you spoke about which is mercy which is reaching out um which is connection which is trying to be that conduit of grace when 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 there is uh, a fabrication or, or of, of a system that prevents that from happening, that's when Jesus is the most critical. And you see yes. that all up and down the, 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 right. the Gospels. I mean, it's very clear who Christ is the most critical towards. But then it's very clear also who Christ is the most tender towards. And that's mm -hmm. Mary Magdalene. That's the mm -hmm. prostitute. We just watched for the first, we watched the first episode of The Chosen. Have you seen this yet? The show? Oh, I haven't. Uh -uh. So this is a show on, uh, that was put out by VidAngel. Are you familiar with the show at all? Are you sure. So, the, so we have we, we only watched the first episode because uh, we want to watch. We wanted to vet it to see if it's appropriate for what age would be appropriate for our kids. But man, that scene where Christ comes in at the end of the first episode with Mary Magdalene is just—I mean, gut, like it's just—that <laughs> was tears coming down my eyes for people oh, who can't see. You know, yeah. it's just beautiful. 
But anyways, but 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 recognition then that that passage isn't licensed for us to the license the passage of be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect isn't licensed for you to beat yourself up because you didn't get the hundred. Right. Rather, it's the opposite. It's learning how to strive in virtue in the midst of it. Now, we also see this then playing out with a story like Mary and Martha, um, the, the dreaded story of Mary and Martha. <laughs> so, so what, are, what are your thoughts on, uh, on, on that, on those passages related to the sisters and what Jesus says to them? Yeah, and I think, I think the thing about Martha, um, which, is, uh, which was really interesting, is um, I, the thing about Martha is I get the sense that she could throw a really great party, right? <laughs> you know, like she's the kind of person you want to throw a party. She's going to have 15 different varieties of snacks on the counter. Things are going to be immaculate. She's going to be waiting on you. She knew how to throw a party. She didn't know how to enjoy a party. Mm. And even more importantly in these passages, she didn't know how to enjoy being with Christ, Right. She she probably felt, and this is just kind of sticking with the model, she might have felt that her value was based on throwing the perfect party, mm-hmm. throwing the perfect, um, you know, kind of meeting for Jesus, who's her friend. And the other thing is, by the way, this is their, this is her friend. This isn't someone that, you know, she she is entirely unacquainted with. And yet you still see this kind of dynamic there. Um, so my sense uh, when he says Mary has chosen the better portion um, he, he basically is saying, um, and this is kind of interesting, I, I see perfectionists as kind of limited in their capacity uh, in the contemplative life. Like they're so active and doer, doer, doer types that they miss out at sitting at the foot of Christ and really learning from him and uniting to him. Um, so my sense is there's some kind of dynamic going on there. Now, I will say, uh, to kind of throw a little wrench in this, uh, this discussion, um, at that time, apparently in that time period, um, women were not supposed to be seated with, let's say, the sage or the or the the rabbi. They were supposed to be doing the kind of work, right, and so forth. So, um, so it's understandable that Martha was concerned about that dynamic too, right? And so here's Jesus, Mister Radical himself, right, just kind of smashing these kind of social norms and things like that. And he says, "No, you're invited." You're invited to be with just as much as the men. Um, and so he's kind of saying a lot of powerful things in one one little uh, phrase there in many ways. Well, it's a powerful message for all of us. I mean, to because we do, we we look towards, we have a tendency to to be hypercritical of ourselves and to focus in on our deficits and to focus in on the ways that we fail to live the Christian message or fail to, to love our lives perfectly or fail to execute our jobs perfectly. Yeah. And the Lord is saying that while yes, it's great that we strive for those things, there is something more fundamental in life than what we do. And that yeah. is that relationship um, that he desires to have with us. I think it's something like Joseph Pieper who said something to the effect that leisure is only possible when man is at one with himself. And we mm-hmm. often overwork to justify our existence that, you mm-hmm. know, we, 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 we we do this we do these other things because somehow we can kind of add it up and it's like wow if I can if I can say that I've done this this and this 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 and this well all of a sudden that's going to make me worthy of eternal life or worthy of relationship or worthy of love or worthy of peace and security what any of those things is basic and the Lord says no like you're worthy just because you are who you are right and right. and and whatever whatever you do on top of that is 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 pure gift it's. It's, yeah. it's, it's a gift to share in the creative energies of the Lord. It's a gift to, to 
co-create with him in whatever endeavors that he invites us to. It's a gift to to till in the garden of ministry that he mm. has invited us to 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 till in or to serve people in a counseling sense. You know, it's all it's all grace that allows us to enter into this. Um, and so we have to be able to be in a place where we can receive this. Now, with the time that we have, let's talk about transitioning for a few minutes, just about kind of what are some things that people can do um, if they find themselves struggling with perfectionism? What are, what are some strategies or ways of being able to, to overcome it? Excellent. Yeah, some prescriptions for perfectionism. Let's do it. Yeah, I, <laughs> yeah and, you know, all these prescriptions, I think, um, that I might suggest are related to that great commandments, right? So love, love the Lord uh, as, uh, uh, with all your heart and so forth. And then that second one, which is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. The perfectionist typically struggles to love others because they don't know how to have self-compassion and mercy toward themselves. And so most of this is directed toward that. Because honestly, I think that is kind of at the core of like mental health. Right. If, if, if at every point, if at every you know, state of mind that you're in, um, every experience and emotion, that you can have some kind of tender compassion toward yourself and understanding that, I think that's extremely important for mental health. So a couple of thoughts. Um, seek unity with God over perfectionism. It, like my sense, my sense is that if you take the prodigal son passage, which I just absolutely love, um, love the loving father embraces and celebrates with the very imperfect prodigal. He didn't have standards other than it's good to have you back. Mm -hmm. And as a father, as a father, um, I, I really get that. Like I never understood before having kids. Um, it's just, if, if they're gone, all that I care about is the return. Um, and this unity, this connection nurtures the excellence because now it's not the person thinking they have to independently become excellent or independently become perfect. Now they have this accompaniment, this kind of journey together and journey with that can really get them to the highest level and to become the best version of themselves. Let me stop um, you right there. Cause you, yeah. you said if we have to kind of flip the script a little bit, which is unity over perfection, um, over work. But if you feel that you're caught in this trap where you have to perform to get unity, wh where do you begin? <laughs> I mean, where, where, how do you, that, that, that's like, if the chicken comes before the egg, but man, the egg comes before the chicken, you know, it's kind of like, we're, we're trying to, yeah. <laughs> trying to flip yeah. something here that, that it can be, can be quite difficult for individuals. Where, what, where would you say? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, I, I would say this. Um, so a couple there's, <laughs> there's a whole bunch I would say about that yeah, because yeah. that's a great point. Um, so I'll try to work my way toward it. The first thing I would say is this. Um, each time the perfectionism surfaces, um, I do recommend this to clients. Uh, I have them actually go back to the prodigal son passage in Luke 15. And I, I have them kind of uh, try to figure out where they're at in that story. Um, because Henry Nouwen, when he wrote the book on <clears throat> the return of the prodigal passage or the return of the prodigal son, he says that um, someone had told him that each of us have these kind of experiences in our life. We're once the prodigal or we're the older brother, but we're all called to be the merciful father is, is the idea. And so what I have them do is I have them try to identify with someone in that passage to read through it. And most perfectionists I find, they identify with the older brother. Right. So <clears throat> when you're identifying with the older brother, no, there's a couple, couple of key points there. Number one, 
it's not psychologically healthy. And number two, it's definitely not spiritually healthy and it's not going to get them to where they want to be. So what I recommend then is I have them imagine, uh, <clears throat> have them imagine being the prodigal or even what I call, I call the older brother, the small P prodigal, right? Cause he's, he's not fully in the house either. He lives there, but he's not fully in that merciful abode. And so I do ask them to turn to Christ and actually focus on three attachment things. Um, so, um, Alan Shore describes three, three ways to promote attachment security. These are the top three. The first one is eye contact. So to try to make eye contact with uh, either the merciful father or Christ in that, in that particular passage. The second one is touch. You know, when, when, when Christ uh, was incarnate, when he, um, uh, there was something very powerful from a psychological standpoint that took place there. And so there's something about attachment security and building this kind of basic trust that's really essential by touch. And so is there a way to turn to him? Um, it, are, they, are they comfortable moving toward Christ? Um, and then lastly, <clears throat> the last thing is play. If you can even get to play with, you, with, let's say, Christ or the Merciful Father, it takes it to a whole different level in terms of psychological experience. So why am I saying all these things? Number one, um, number one, because there's a lot of research on what's called security priming. If someone's, if someone's distressed, all that the person literally has to do is to think about some kind of secure attachment figure and then, and then what happens is they start to behave and think and feel more like a secure person rather than being in that insecure perfectionist state, right? Um, there's lots of research. They do this even uh, in fraction of a second. They'll put like the name grandma on a mm. screen to, to where they can't even see it, subliminal. But it, hits, but it gets them and they behave like a secure individual in the research study compared to those that were insecure and didn't receive that subliminal prime. So that's so, so I'm going with that. The second thing it does is it also, <clears throat> it kind of shifts toward I'm not alone. Um, it shifts toward I can turn to someone to, for support. That's the second thing. The third thing it does is it distracts them from that perfectionistic rumination for a while. Um, so so th those, those can be, if a person engages in this on a regular basis, it can be a very kind of important uh, way of, getting out of that perfectionism mind state and cycle. Um, one other quick thing on that, Henry Nouwen has this really interesting quote as he was describing uh, the three main figures in the prodigal son passage. He said, both needed the embrace of a forgiving father. So there's that touch, right? But from the story itself, as well as from Rembrandt's painting, which is remarkable. If people haven't seen it, I'd highly recommend it. It's eight foot, is it eight foot tall by six foot wide, but it's a remarkable painting of the prodigal son. Yeah. Um, but he says, it is clear that the hardest conversion to go through is the conversion of the one who stayed at home. It's mm. the perfectionist. It's not, it's not the prodigal. It's the perfectionist because it's such a self-reinforcing kind of thing. People like it. They, you know, they, they praise you for, for doing well and achieving uh, at a high level. Okay, so that's the first thing. I, I tend to like, like security priming, kind of distraction, attachment-focused types of, of treatment for that. Um, and by the way, one other side note on that, Mario, um, if a person doesn't feel comfortable with Christ in their spiritual life or the merciful father, they can imagine someone else within the Christian tradition, right? It could be an angel. It could be a saint. It could be one of the other persons of the Trinity. Um, a lot of people choose St. Joseph, but it, it depends on who feels 
who they feel least insecure around, who they feel safest with, imagine turning to that individual. And there's a lot of, a lot of research to back taking that approach uh, just at a psychology level. But it could also be even just a, a living person, a family member or somebody of that nature that really Absolutely. kind of embodied a, a, a virtuous, loving relationship for them. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It could be a natural level. It could be someone who died who's mm-hmm. already, already passed away. It could be something like a memory they had at age five when the big brother helped him out on something. Right. But something to take them to <clears throat> a security inducing kind of state of mind is, yeah. is what they're going after. Um, another thing to consider, um, it's, they call it the X minus one X plus one principle. What is that? Yeah. So, uh, I, I like this in terms of like, uh, working with, uh, students who struggle a lot uh, trying to trying to go overboard with uh, you know uh, getting the A plus plus. I heard I had one time I was I was telling this to a uh, one of the mothers of a, of a high school student I was working with, and she says, "Oh yeah," she said, "That's called the get a B and get a life principle." <laughs> <laughs> but the but the idea is do less and do it less well. So it, Aristotle had this notion of the stick that is bent to one side, right? So how do you ha- how do you do with it? Well, you go the positive opposite. You bend it the opposite direction. Notice I didn't say break it, but you bend it the opposite direction. So if a person is used to trying to go for 110% on a, on a particular paper, they're going to go for a 95% or a 91%. That's and by the way, it is, it is. I could, get, I could be shot. I'm glad this is <laughs> but, but the idea is that if you ask them to tone it down little by little with gentleness and time, they're going to be able to kind of go back to where it ought to be. Because the idea is they're overcompensating doing too much. And we're going to ask them to do a little bit less and it's going to get them closer to that middle ground, which is where you can have peace and still achieve at a high level. Um, the other, the other thing, um, this will also you can you can think of the x minus one x plus one in terms of quantity and quality. So quantity, uh, if a, let's say a, a house mom or let's say a husband is trying to prepare for some get together, instead of spending x minus one, instead of spending two hours cleaning the house and making it utterly pristine and uh, you know able to eat off the floor, what we're going to ask them to do is we're gonna, how about an hour forty five. Yeah, we're just going to knock that quantity of time down a little bit. Okay, great. And then you'll have that extra 15 minutes for leisure, play, pray, whatever you want to do. Um, so that that minus one turns into a plus one opportunity um, for them to work on. That's a quantity difference of X minus one, X plus one. So I think it's the, good to, to – hold on, just to say that yeah. – you know, even the two hours minus 15 minutes isn't to say that you're going to do a radical reshift. You're not saying, okay, we'll only dedicate 30 minutes. Just taking it down a notch, not 15 notches, just one little notch and recognizing that, that some, like, just try it and see what happens and see if it's good enough for you. Um, because even that, that question of, of what's enough gets into some of the things that we've, we've already been speaking about with regards to family pressures or friend pressures or narratives that are been placed on us from our upbringing and recognizing that we have to do the hard work as an adult. Yeah. To really be able to determine what is enough for us. And if mm-hmm. we do that introspective work of saying like what my standards are, again, we're not speaking about necessarily questions of morality. Obviously, the Ten Commandments are there and we're trying to live those. Right. But we're speaking about the way we live our lives. Obviously, cleaning your house for two hours 
isn't at the same level of thou shall not commit murder, right? We're not speaking sure. of things of, of, of grave moral matter here, although sometimes we equate the two. But yes. trying to decide for yourself, well, what are the standards that, that you want to live by and how do you make your life in conformity to that? I think that's part of the negotiation that needs to happen when somebody struggles with perfectionism is to be yeah. able to do the process of letting go of those 15 minutes, so to speak, um, both in that particular time frame that you spoke about with that example, but but also in, in a more um, uh, reflective experience, letting go of some of those harsher standards as well that may not be yeah. ones that we really agree with, but are just ones that we've been living by. Um, yeah. And that type of introspective work is is part of the process here as well. Absolutely, yeah, and and I like I like the term introspective, um, thinking of spectacles and looking at. Uh, there is a that kind of gets to the next point, which you bridged really well. Um, there was a spiritual director that said you always need to have uh, two eye, or four eyes instead of two, right? Uh, because we simply cannot know ourselves well enough on our own. We need to turn to people for support. That's why spiritual direction or spiritual advising has been such a key component in the church tradition. Um, but also uh, mentorship, right? So the idea that turning to someone who you trust and who is balanced, who can give you feedback on whether or not something you're doing is perfectionistic or too much. Um, so that it's well that said. Contemporary- it's well said. So- Sorry. I mean, that's just, you're right on. Because sometimes we, we, we can't, we're so critical of ourselves that we need, we need that extra person. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but, but keep going. You're right on it. Yeah, no, no, I, I agree. I think, I think, and, and when I say trusting and balanced, I mean, because if you don't trust this person, even if they're balanced, you're not going to follow through with their suggestions. Right. And if you trust them and they're not balanced, we know, well, we know that's problematic itself. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I, but I, but I think the idea of having someone else to kind of reflect this back to and say, Hey, you know, this is an area I'm working on. Can you give me some feedback? Um, can be very powerful. Um, even in like 12 step models, if you talk to people that go to like AA meetings or um, Alcoholics Anonymous meetings or other types of uh, 12 step models, a lot of times they'll say it's not the meetings that really help me to see myself and change and all this stuff. They'll say it's it's the sponsor. Yeah. yeah it's the person I could turn to and talk to and they just I trust them and, and, and I just follow their advice and suggestions and so forth. So that's another thing that can be done though. Um, I really think one of the key variables of helping to overcome perfectionism is really trying to live the forgiving life. And, mm-hmm. and when I say that, I don't mean just forgiving. I mean developing the virtue of forgivingness. Um, it's this character stri- trait that where we try to forgive others. And because one of the things with perfectionists is that they tend to be very critical of other people. And they're critical of themselves. So mercy is not uh, is not a key strength, typically of perfectionists. And so the idea is that we want to continue to work on the forgiving life to help them with that. I'll give you an example about this. Um, there was a an individual I know whose father must have been going through a real tough time when she was a little girl. But I guess he pushed her. It was abusive. He pushed her out from her high chair. She hit her head on the floor, had really bad damage, I think, to her neck and, um, and spine. And so it was a terrible event. And then on top of that, the way that she remembered that event is that he said, um, sooner around that time or later, he said, you'll never amount to anything, is how, is how he put it. So, so you take that horrible event, that very traumatic event, I would say, and then add that kind of 
language from a key person like a father. So what she did, true story, what she did at age five, from that time forward, she said, I am going to prove him wrong, right? So this anger fueled her. She became anger. Literally, she became anger. And what happened is she, I think it was like maybe first grade, she heard about a valid, what a valedictorian was. I don't know what you were doing in first grade. <laughs> I wasn't thinking about being valedictorian. But she I wasn't thinking hand. about valedictorian even when I was a senior in high school. <laughs> 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 Good point. We're kindred spirits. Yes, so, so what happened is she set out at a very young age to become valedictorian to prove her dad wrong. And not just prove him wrong, to shove it in his face. That's her language. So what happened, um, she forged an identity on anger. And so when we talked about the issue of forgiveness, because she was also trying to discern a call to married life, um, she, did, she did well. Like she achieved high. But whenever she made a little mistake, dad was right, right? Dad was right. And so when we talked about forgiveness, she said, I'm terrified. She said, I don't know what my life will be like without all this anger that drives me to achieve. And so fortunately, she was able to work on the forgiveness. We actually did some reconciliation with her dad. She went off to a a wonderful graduate program. She wrote back within, I think, two months. And she said, Thank you for having me focus on forgiveness and reconciling with my dad. She said it was the most important thing I've ever done in my life. Wow. I I really think that helped her with her perfectionism and gave her some of that peace that she was really striving for. Yeah, this is what's made Brene Brown's message so popular is is that she does a wonderful job articulating that it's shame that tends to drive the perfectionism, as you spoke about, and we'll yeah. keep it in the context of everything we've been speaking about. And and in the antidote to shame, the answer response to shame isn't further criticism, isn't being incredibly harsh with ourselves, but rather is self-compassion, mercy, empathy. And, yes. and if we can be vulnerable with people, like you said, who are trusted and balanced and receive courageously their empathy, that is a recipe to success, emotionally speaking. And, and I yes. love the way that she equates then the virtue of courage to mm-hmm. vulnerability, because it's mm-hmm. exactly like you're talking about, which is that for somebody who lives, to use your example here, by this mantra that I'm going to shove it in this guy's face, I'm going to prove him wrong, therefore I can't show weakness, yeah. to do the counter narrative of that is a real 180, and that to believe that that 180 actually is going to work out in my favor is an yeah. incredible act of virtue. It's an incredible yeah. act of courage to Absolutely. say that that I'm going to try to do something differently here that runs contrary to the script that I've been living by because I need something different. I need to do something different because what I've been doing isn't working for me anymore. And so mm-hmm. to, to say then I'm going to choose vulnerability in the face of perfectionism, I'm going to choose to be open and imperfect and reveal my imperfections appropriately, of course, to those that I love. And to yeah. be able to receive their empathy and their grace in the midst of that um, is really uh, just a beautiful, beautiful message and beautiful path of, of living. So, uh, Peter, we're, we're coming to the end of our time here, but uh, this has been a delightful conversation. I'm so grateful uh, for your time and, and offering your thoughts. If, if people have been enjoying what they've been hearing, uh, what, what do you got to plug? How can people access some, uh, some more of what you're doing? Yeah, definitely. Um, so. 
the organization I work for is Catholic Social Services, in particular Immaculate Heart of Mary Counseling Center in Lincoln, Nebraska. Uh, we have uh, training options for people that are interested. We also have on our website a number of kind of uh, mental health minutes that we've we posted. Um, I believe it's immaculateheartcounseling.org uh, is the is the website. It's the Immaculate Heart of Count, uh, Immaculate Heart of Mary Counseling Center for Catholic Social Services of of uh, Lincoln, Nebraska. So please uh, take a look take a look at what we have to offer. We're going to be adding more of those as well as blogs. Uh, on uh, more blog posts on there for people to kind of uh, keep up to date with and and really trying to make it a faith integrated approach because um, we're not just doing this because we're pious Catholics you know <laughs> we're not just integrating we're also doing it because there is a massive meta analytic body of research that shows if you incorporate faith and religion into the psychotherapy with clients that that want that it improves not just their mental health it actually improves a, at a significant level their spiritual life. Um, it's kind of a, it's true soul therapy, if you want to call it that, but, um, it's a win-win. So yeah, please check out our website and, uh, we'd love to, love to have you come by. Praise God. Well, we will have the appropriate and correct links, uh, and websites uh, for that in the show notes, uh, for anybody who wants to, to access that. So, uh, Peter Martin, uh, question I ask all my first time guests, what gives you hope? You know, just uh, I love when you ask that question at the end of your <laughs> podcast. It's a great question. Uh, for me, I'm going to pull pretty heavily from Bishop Barron here because I think I think he hit a home run when he described uh, this kind of both and of Catholicism. And so he he described extreme demands, extreme mercy. Right. Um, the perfectionist in my mind struggles with hope because they're very merciless or not very compassionate toward themselves or others at times. So they emphasize extreme demands to the exclusion of, of mercy. So what gives me hope is that the church wants greatness for me. God wants greatness for me and everybody else uh, that's listening and everybody else in the world. And so the, the church mediates the Lord's overflowing mercy to, to, to individuals, but it also wants them to achieve at a high level, to be more and to not be lukewarm, mediocre, half-alive humans, right? So um, what, what, what really gives me hope is this extreme mercy that the Lord provides for me and my kind of weakness and struggles in life. Amen. Well, thanks for being prepared for that question. That was awesome. <laughs> Most people are caught off guard when I ask it. I'm like, have you not listened to the show? Come on, I ask it to everybody. <laughs> you have to be perfect. No, yeah, you have to be perfect. <laughs> Thank you. It's been, a, it's been a joy talking with you as well, Mario. Thank you so much. Fantastic. Awesome. Well, Peter, God bless you and all the good work that you're doing up in Lincoln. Take care. Take care. God bless. Well, that does it. Another episode is done. Was it good enough? <laughs> I don't know. The perfectionist in me always struggles with that question, but I'm going to let it go. And I'm going to say absolutely that it was good enough. And so I pray that it was a blessing to you. Please continue to rest in the mercy of God and in striving for greatness while at the same time maintaining that peace. That's a key takeaway for me that Dr. Martin spoke about. Uh, we shouldn't apologize for being great. We shouldn't apologize for seeking greatness. But at the same time, we shouldn't sell our soul to it as well. God desires good things for you in your life. Uh, have faith in him and trust in his mercy as he guides you in all things. So thank you, everybody, for being with me. Check out other great episodes of the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or even on our website, faithandmarriage.org. God bless you all. I'm going to hope you're having a great day. Bye-bye.